Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me.
in our first session, in our study of uh, what it means to be born again, I tried to focus our attention on Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus of the absolute necessity of spiritual rebirth for entering into the kingdom of God. What I would like to do in this segment is to discuss another aspect of rebirth, and that is it's mysterious. So that the point I was trying to make the first time was that regeneration is necessary. Now I would like to turn our attention to the second point, which is that regeneration is mysterious. A few weeks ago, I had uh, an experience, an opportunity to talk privately with a gentleman for one hour whom I had met just very briefly, only once in my life before that, and never had the opportunity for one-to-one conversation, and it was Billy Graham. And I had the opportunity to eat dinner with Dr. Graham in Asheville, North Carolina. And we discussed several things on that occasion, but in the middle of our discussion, I don't know how we got on to it, but we each told to the other one our own conversion experience. And Billy began to relate to me what had happened to him as a young man when he came under the influence of the preaching of a man by the name of Mordecai Ann, who was doing a series of services in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Billy went through this episode for me privately, which he has preached about many times and written about in his books, but to hear him tell it one-on-one after all of these years was a a very humbling experience for me to sit there and listen to this, because what came across in his story was that it seemed to me that he was as excited about it as if it had happened last night that he was still filled with a passion and a flame that had been kindled years and years and years and years ago in that moment when he met Christ. And he, he was describing for me all the different things that were he went through as he was uh, drawn to these services and listened uh, night after night after night until he finally uh, was uh, irresist-drawn to Christ. In fact, Billy looked at me and he said, uh, the Holy Spirit did it all. And he was talking about being born of the Spirit. I remember vividly my wife's conversion to Christ. Uh, I was converted to Christ a few months before Vesta was, and she was coming to our college campus and, and uh, we were going to have a, a meeting with our Christian organization there on the campus, and I was in a real moral dilemma. Vest and I had gone together at that point for about five years, and it was our desire and our plan to be married. We were engaged, and suddenly I found myself a new Christian. And I was told very early in my religious experience, that as a Christian, I was not permitted to marry a woman who was not a Christian. 
but this is the woman that I wanted to marry, and this is the woman I was engaged to, and this was fierce conflict for me at that point in my life. And so that's what I was struggling with while I was away from Vesta. Back at the ranch, Vesta was struggling with this strange behavior that had taken over her her fiancé, who uh, had been uh, 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 indeed uh, absent from any serious uh, religious persuasion prior to whatever it was that had turned him upside down, and she didn't know whether I was losing my mind or what. And so what I did the day that she was to arrive, I skipped classes that day and got alone in my room and locked the door, and I got on the ground beside my bed, and I prayed like I never prayed. I prayed like an Arminian, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I would say, hey, God, I don't know what the eternal decrees are, but if, if you have one that, that, that doesn't fit my, my preference here, you better change it, because I wrestled with God for hours for that occasion and made this commitment that if Vesta did not become a Christian that weekend, that I would break up with her. And I put it on the line. And you know, we had this meeting, and I did not tell Beth that, look, uh, if you don't make it this weekend, I want the ring back. You know, <laughs> there was none of that. We, I didn't let her have any idea of uh, the prayers, and not only was I praying, but other people were praying as well. She came to that meeting, and quite apart from me, she in that meeting. And she came out of that meeting. She was so excited. Uh, she had she was like Eureka, Archimedes coming out of the bathtub screaming, Eureka, I have found it. Uh, she knew what every Christian knows, the joy of her redemption. But when she went to bed that night, she told me the next day, she said, uh, she said that all night long she kept waking up. And she kept pitching herself and said, is it still there? Do I still have it? And then she would sort of check with her internal feelings and say, yep, it's still there. And she'd roll back over and get back to sleep. Well, the next morning when we got together, she told me about how she kept waking up and asking herself if this is still there. And then she made this comment to me, which I'll never forget. She said, now I know who the Holy Spirit is. For the first time in her life, she had a personal understanding of the identity and the character of God the Holy Spirit. And she said, you know, she had heard the name of the Holy Spirit. She wasn't totally devoid of activities and religion. She had been reared in the church. She had gone regularly, attended uh, church, and, and they would say their prayers, and they would pronounce the benediction in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. But it was all ceremony to her, and there was no personal substance of application involved in this religious background that she had. And then she said, now I know who the Holy Spirit is. But how easily do you think she could have articulated that to somebody at that point? I had been going crazy trying to tell her. And it was like a blind man, uh, a person trying to explain a, a, a rainbow to a blind man. And it's one of the most difficult things in the world to articulate what it means to 
have a spiritual experience that changes your life, that really changes your life. Regeneration is a mystery. And it's not simply a mystery to those of us who experience it, but it is also an impenetrable mystery at the bottom line, even for skilled theologians, as it was for Nicodemus. I want to take you back now to that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, where Jesus said to him, unless a man is born of the Spirit, he can't see the kingdom of God, and he can't enter the kingdom of God. What did Nicodemus say? Do you remember when Jesus said those words to him, Nicodemus looked at Jesus and said, how can these things be? Jesus, what are you talking about? How can these things be? Does does a man have to enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born anew? Now, that is one of the most crass comments that anybody ever made to Jesus, talking about a grown person trying to squeeze himself back into the birth canal so that he could undergo this second birth that Jesus says is a requirement. That's why Jesus talked about this concept of regeneration. Notice the prefix, re something that has to happen again. And the word to generate in the ancient world, in the Greek world, the word that they're using here means to be, become, or to be happen. And so Nicodemus is confused here. He said, what do you mean born a second time? How can it, it can't be possible for somebody to be born a second time. He missed the point that Jesus was trying to make, that Jesus was talking about a second birth that is a real birth, but it's not a mere repetition of the first birth. To try to explain something of this mystery to Nicodemus, you know, Jesus, Nicodemus said, how can these things be? How can a man be born when he is old? Jesus gives this word of explanation. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, Jesus, again, is, is, uh, seems to have a tremendous grasp of the obvious. But it is an obvious point, an elementary point, that bears repeating for the ears of this theologian. You know, where most professional theologians go astray is not at some technical point of theology, foundational point at an elementary point, a point that should have been mastered many, many years ago. In fact, later on in this text, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus loudly, but he rebukes him. He says, Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? It's as if Jesus says, shame on you. You should know these things. This is the ABCs of biblical religion. This is no startling, esoteric, arcane 
uh, innovation that I'm making now uh, in the 20th, in, in the first century here. This is something that is at the root of the Judeo-Christian faith. The reason it's necessary is because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And you can't get spirit out of flesh. You want to have an, an, an oak tree? You've got to plant an acorn, not a strawberry. The flesh only yields flesh. And everyone is born in the flesh. That's not new, Nicodemus. The Old Testament teaches that concept on every page. That which is born in the spirit is spirit. And we're talking about spiritual birth. Confuse it with a mere repetition of a biological process. I'm talking about something far more mysterious than that. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he says, do not marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again. Boy, if there's ever uh, an injunction that was uttered by Jesus of Nazareth that his people have ignored, it's that one. Because people still get astonished and uptight and nervous if somebody suggests that, again, that it's necessary to be reborn. Jesus, don't be amazed by that. Don't marvel at that. And then he begins to answer Nicodemus' question about how. But in answering the mystery, he continues the mystery. What does he say? The wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a play on words here that's that's, uh, marvelous with Jesus. In the Old Testament, when we meet the Spirit of God for the first time, the Spirit of God is called the Ruach of Yahweh. And the word Ruach in Hebrew is used for three different concepts. The same word is the word for spirit, It is the word for breath, and it is the word for wind. And that's one of the strains of language that that same phenomenon of the same three words being communicated by one word is found not only in the Hebrew language, but also in the Greek language. That the word pneuma in Greek is the Greek word for spirit. It's the Greek word for breath. And it is the Greek word for wind. So that when Jesus in the upper room breathes on his disciples and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He, the, the word for breath there is pneuma. He pneumatizes them and says, receive the Holy Pneuma. Just that in creation, 
when God creates man in the original act of creation, the way in which this narrative gives as an account is that God reaches down and takes the mud from the ground, the dust of the earth, and he molds it and he shapes it as a sculpture would a piece of clay. But one of the world's greatest sculptors is finished with a piece of clay. That beautiful piece of art still remains inert and lifeless. But when God finishes shaping and forming the figure of a man, he puts that piece of mud to his mouth. And what does the scripture say? He breathes into that form the breath of life, and man becomes a living nephesh, a living soul. The breath of God creates the spirit of man. So Jesus plays with this language that he is, of course, certain Nicodemus understands the play on the words. He said, you want to know how regeneration takes place? What's the process? He said, Nicodemus, the pneuma blows where it will. You hear the sound of it. You hear the wind. You see the effects of it. You can perceive with your eyes the influence of the wind. You can see the trees starting to bend. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And that's the way the new mind is. That's the way the spirit works. His work of rebirth is mysterious. And why is it mysterious? There's a lot of mystery associated with the person of the Holy Spirit. I go back to what I said about Vesta the night that, there, that she became a Christian. Now I know who the Holy Spirit is. One of the greatest works that's ever been written in the history of the church on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit was written by the Prime Minister of Holland, who was also a theologian whose name was Abraham Kuyper. And in Abraham Kuyper's classic work, he starts off that uh, work on the Holy Spirit by saying, the Holy Spirit never leaves footprints in the sand. The reason why regeneration is mysterious is because regeneration is invisible. I can't see God doing something in your soul. That's why we can fool each other about this business, can't we? I can claim to be reborn. I can profess to be regenerate and not be. And by the same token, what? I can say I don't think I'm regenerate and actually be regenerate. That's why we're warned in the scriptures that man looks on the outward appearances, but God looks on the heart. That regeneration, rebirth, is a spiritual reality that takes place 
inside a person that transforms that person, meets that necessary condition of which we have spoken, but is invisible. Like the wind is invisible. Last week they had an artist on television, and he was doing some sketching and some painting before the camera, and as he was painting, he was explaining the techniques that he was using. Now, I'm going to try to illustrate that for you without the ability or the tools to do it. We're not going to be able to, to duplicate what he did, but he started off by painting some clouds, some nice billowy, aren't they nice, clouds on the canvas. And he showed how he used this particular brush to shade them and how which kind of swirls he put on the canvas as he painted these clouds. But when he was finished with the first point of his, the first part of the clouds, he put this particular brush down and he took out this great big thick brush. And he said, now, if you look at those clouds, they look like clouds, like these clouds back behind us. But they are frozen on the canvas, still, as if they were paralyzed. But real clouds are always in motion. Because clouds not only have moisture, but they are being blown by the wind, and he went on to do this thing, whole thing about air currents and how clouds are blown. And so they went over, and he took this big brush, and he, he took it in such a way where he, he moved his hand around and sort of sort of took it up like that and, and again like that so that at the top of the clouds there was not a symmetrical, pure, straight line that clearly delineated the edge of the cloud, but the clouds were moving and swirling up, as, and you could almost feel the wind in the picture as a result of this technique. And then he went on to say, he said, you know, he said, it used to take me two weeks to get that effect until I found this brush that I could just do it, do it like that. But we see those effects. We can see the results of the wind. But the wind is invisible to the naked eye. You can feel it. You can sense its presence. You know when it's windy, and you know when it's calm, and you know when there's just a zephyr in the air. Jesus says that is analogous to the secret inward work, spiritual rebirth. It's like the wind. If you want to see the evidence, the tangible manifestation of rebirth, what has to happen? You have to look for the fruits of a changed life. I can't see your soul. All I can see is your behavior. And that's what causes so much problems for us because we can see changes in our lives for the good, but we also see what? The same old stuff. We see the things that we don't want to see and we don't want anybody else to see. 
And so the question that you have to ask yourself as you're analyzing the state of your own soul is not where were you when you were born again, how, you know, uh, how did it happen? But the question is this, is there any evidence of a change in my inner direction, of my disposition, of my attitude towards the things of God? The unregenerate person is at best indifferent about the things of God. Really doesn't care. And it isn't funny that, that, that you come, if you are reborn, it's, it's, so many people seem to forget what they were like beforehand, and they get real, nothing worse than a reformed drunk or a reformed uh, person, and they get real uh, puffed up and arrogant and, they, and they judgmental about people who are not born again. And that's bad. You have to remember who you are and where you came from. But you know one of the hardest things for a Christian to endure with grace is to hear the name of Christ mutilated publicly. Uh, does that get to you? Does it go around and down your spine? It gets up and down my spine. And, and I always try not to let people know that that, that that really gets to me like that because it's not our job to be their policemen. About that. They don't realize. They don't realize what that is. But see, th- to use the name of Christ in cursing, in a sense, tells us the state of our innermost affections with respect to God. But as I say, we're best indifferent and at worst openly hostile towards God when we are unregenerate. Because the first thing that changes when you are changed inwardly is not even your behavior. It's the internal disposition of your soul. It is the attitude of your heart, change of spiritual renewal. You now have an affection for God that you never had before. It is not perfect, and it's far from being perfected, but it is there and it's real, and it's working. You not be able to, to locate it on an x-ray. Its origin and its power will probably remain mysterious to you until the day you die. But the undeniable reality is that your heart is beating for God where it never did before. Once again, that was... R.C. Sproul, What Does It Mean to Be Born Again? And you can find the actual video for it on Ligonier Ministry. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R, Ligonier Ministries. And you're from Emilus Cantrell here on Tributal Radio. Next one I got for you, this is from Wretched, and it's called Three Words to Help You Avoid Becoming a Male Sissy Pet. <laughs> It's okay to be a mess. Not okay. Necessary. All of the things that used to give us anchors of identity have become very fluid or very volatile in recent years. And God created man in his own image. Weak men produce the death of society. I see so many young men wasting their strength in foolishness, just outright childishness, instead of becoming men. Give us the man who know the truth. 
It's a tad agitating that Matt Walsh even had to ask this question. What is a woman? What is a woman? What is a woman? What is a woman? What is a girl? Unfortunately, it seems that we need to ask this question, too. But what is a man? What does it mean to be a man? What is a man? What does it mean to be a man? In fairness, I can understand why there can be some confusion about what it looks like to be a 21st century male. Face it, you got to be a man to wear tights. For instance, this is just to be generous. If I asked you, is wearing a skirt something that a man should do? Methinks you'd say, uh, no. But what if I showed you this picture? And ask the same question, you'd probably say, well, well, that's not a skirt, it's a kilt. Sure, but a skirt by any other name is a skirt. Unless, of course, you're an independent fundamentalist, then it would be a skort. Here's another example of how things can get confusing. Should a man be a seamstress? You'd probably think, no, that's what women do on Singer sewing machines. But what if I reminded you that Paul was a tent maker who sewed? Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. See what I mean? This is precisely why liberals are very successful at blurring gender distinctives. They play a really crafty shell game. But if you and I can identify the three shells that contribute to the definition of masculinity, the liberal game will be up. And bonus, Christian males will have a much easier time knowing what it means to be a man and what it means to act like a man. So here are the three shells. Hat tip to Dr. Greg Gifford, who discussed this in his amazing Transform podcast, which you should be listening to. Shell number one that defines what it means to be a male, biological, clearly differences between men and women, chromosomes, testosterone levels, reproductive organs, strength, size, speed, more body hair on men than well, most women. Because these markers are fixed, the left tries to ignore the shell and pretend, let's just overlook biology. But biology does exist, and that's going to be important when we try to paint a picture of what it really means to be male. Now, please note, markers are fixed, but we observe some of these markers are more prevalent in some men than in others. Please hold that thought as we ponder shell number two. Biblical. The Bible defines what it means to be male. After all, shouldn't the maker have a say in this? And the Bible's clear. And that is why the left likes to tear up the Bible and remove biblical definitions of masculinity from the conversation because the Bible affirms men are stronger. Men are to be leaders, servant leaders, who provide and protect. Men are to honor women, pure, be proactive, be courageous, be strong and gentle and kind. Paul even tells Timothy that men are to pursue ongoing present tense, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and fruit of the Spirit. That's shell two. This is shell number three, and this is where it gets dicey. Social definitions. Like it or not, society plays a role in defining what it means to be masculine. Here's an example. 1920s, Catherine Hepburn, scandal. She wore pants. What? Because that was an article of clothing that was typically reserved for males. Now, today, few of us would think pants are exclusively 
masculine, unless, of course, you're an independent fundamentalist. <laughs> Love ya. Perhaps this will be a helpful summary. It's not perfect of what it means to be male. Your body determines if you are a pink or a blue. The Bible determines what a man is and how a man should act. Society also informs men about their behavior and presentation, but it's in a very limited way that must be defined by the Bible. So with that in mind, let's use those three categories to tackle a list of contested issues to paint a picture of what it means to be a male on the inside and the outside. Let's start with biology. Masculine markers are fixed, chromosomes, reproductive organs, but many physical characteristics have varying degrees. Men in general are stronger than women, but because one guy is stronger than another guy, we wouldn't say that he's more manly. He has more of a masculine attribute, but that doesn't make you a man. All that to say, physical markers are fixed, but there are varying degrees, and they don't necessarily make one more masculine than another. Second category, the Bible. If a wimpy guy ran into a burning building to save a child, would you think he was a sissy because he didn't have muscle mass? No, you'd say he acted manly because he was courageous, which is a biblical attribute of masculinity. On the other hand, if Mr. Steroid turned and ran away from a burning building, you would say he wasn't acting like a man. Why? Because the Bible informs us what internal manliness looks like, and we recognize there are some external markers, but the Bible focuses far more on the internal. Third category, society. What should a man wear? The answer is, believe it or not, culture decides. Example, pink. 18th century European males, they wore pink to impress people with their wealth or power. In other words, culture dictates what we should wear. But clothes do not a man make. A true man is one who is increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Example, how should a man sit? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything specifically about this, but culture isn't silent. It's acceptable for a man to sit with his legs crossed like this or like this, but it ain't cool for a man to sit with their legs double-crossed. Who determines these things? Answer is the, the culture does. And this is precisely why the Bible, a young man, how to be, and then he will know how to act in a society when they overstep their bounds in dictating what is manly and what isn't. It is the Bible that tells us if society's gender norms are indeed normative and if our body parts define who and what is a boy and girl so not to beat the horse to death but we're gonna a physically weak man who is more christ-like is more of a man than a bodybuilder who isn't if you're a young male trying to navigate these rather choppy gender erasing waters let me encourage you to do five things that will help you be a biblical man one Study your Bible to discover the internal attributes of a man. Two, find older godly men who are willing to disciple you and model for you what it means to be a Christian man. Three, if you need to work out in order to beef up 
To be strong, make sure you check your motive. Are you doing it to show off or to protect the weak? Just because you can bench more weight than the other brohams at the gym, it doesn't make you more of a man. It merely means that you have more of a masculine physical attribute, but it is what you do with that strength that matters far more than how much strength you actually have. Four, culture says, is manly, but turn the volume way down. Five, Start practicing now. Start being a man who looks like Jesus, and you will know how to act like a true man. If you study the one who is the ideal man, increasingly you will become the manliest man on your block, no matter how much you can bench press. Discuss. All right, gentlemen, second half. Here's the... Cavemen, leaving clues of their intelligence. This is Ken Ham, co-author of the eye-opening book on Noah's Flood, A Flood of Evidence. On cave walls across Europe, you'll find paintings of animals accompanied by dots and dashes. What could it mean? Well, a group of researchers believe they know. The markings can be broken down into periods which coincide with the cycles of the moon. That's right. It seems the so-called cavemen left behind a lunar calendar. Perhaps it was used to track the migration of animals, which is good information for people who survived by hunting. This find reminded me that once again, science confirms what we'd expect starting with God's word. Our ancestors weren't dumb brutes. They were fully human, made in God's image, just as we are. Find out more about the true history of the world when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be challenged to think starting with God's Word at AnswersRadio.com.
Cavemen, a big mystery? This is Ken Ham, editor of the popular series of books for children, The Answers Books for Kids. Living in caves scattered across Europe, a group of people left behind tools, art, and a few bones. Who were they? And when? And how did they live? So-called cavemen might seem like a big mystery, but they're actually not. You see, the Bible gives us the history to understand that cavemen were just, well, men who lived in caves. The global flood of Noah's day was followed by an ice age. It covered much of Europe with ice and snow. Noah's descendants, who lived in that region, made the best of it, taking shelter in caves and hunting to survive. These people aren't that mysterious. They're people, like us, living in the harsh world after the flood. God's Word makes sense of the world. Find answers to build your biblical worldview. And sign up for Ken's free e-newsletters. Go to AnswersRadio.com. Lord, I'm writing this to you. I really hope you hear my heart. When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start. Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning, way before the beginning. And this fallen world's distorted opinions. It was just the Holy Trinity, ruling from infinity. Blaze tremendously, loving one another endlessly. Billions, billions of years ago, outside of what we know, it's time. Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. Have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change. Never change. Forever you reign. You remain the same. You will never change. You will never change. Immutable, beautiful. You never change. 
another day, how you reign supreme by far. Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are. There's none like you in existence. You are God and you need no assistance. Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance that existed between God and man. According to your sovereign plan, we changed many times in one lifespan. I changed even since this song began. Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us. All that you do will certainly last. You are the rock that we can trust. Shows us back in eternity past. As long ago as that was. As long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same. All of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cross When Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of sin's great cost I'm saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust He died So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free Forever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Don't trust the TV depictions. This is Ken Ham, editor of the expose Glasshouse Shattering the Myth of Evolution. If you ask someone to describe a caveman, they'd probably use words like unintelligent or less evolved. You see, most people's view of cavemen comes from TV programs that depict so-called cavemen as dumb, hunchback brutes who can only grunt a few syllables. But that picture is a lie. We know now that these people who lived in caves made musical instruments and tools, wore jewelry and makeup, heated their cave homes, and even used a lunar calendar. Don't get your view of our ancestors from the media. Look to God's Word, which tells us all people are descended from Adam and Eve and made in God's image. Discover answers to combat evolutionary teaching when you visit AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again and many others when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
Made from an ape man? This is Ken Ham, hoping you'll visit our life-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. The influence of evolution, even in the church, has become strong. Some Christians claim that God created Adam from an ape man and Eve from an ape woman. But is that what the Bible teaches? No, God made Adam from the dust and Eve from his side. Now, is dust just a metaphor for the ape man God used to make Adam? Well, no. God tells Adam after he sinned that he came from dust and he'd return to dust. And Adam didn't turn back into an ape man when he died. Let's not start with man's ideas about our origins and try to squeeze them into the Bible. Let's let God's word be the authority 
and start our thinking on that foundation. Discover more about the Bible as well as our Ark Encounter, where kids 10 and under are free at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped with answers at AnswersRadio.com. Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make all things? For His glory. How can you glorify God? By loving Him and doing what He commands. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible. What's the Bible? God's Word. God's Word. God's Word. Is there more than one God? No, there is only one God. And how many persons does this one God exist? Three persons. Who are the three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where is God? God is everywhere. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. Who were our first parents? Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned against God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Why did God send Jesus into the world? To save his people from their sins. What did Jesus do to save his people from their sins? He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. From the grave. From the grave. Jesus do after he rose from the grave? He ascended into heaven. Where is Jesus now? He is seated at his father's right hand. And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age? He's going to come back and judge the world. What must a person do to be saved? Believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And how is a person saved? By God's grace alone. And what is grace? God's kindness to the undeserving. Creationists, we were right. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and the Ark Encounter. The most famous of the so-called cavemen are the Neanderthals. Now, those who start with God's word have always said that these people were fully human, descended from Adam. When scientists first sequenced some of their DNA, they declared Neanderthals were not our ancestors. How could this be? Was the Bible wrong? Are all people not descended from Adam? Well, when the evidence seems to contradict the Bible, it's the interpretation of the evidence, not the Bible, that's wrong. Years later, scientists discovered that known humans and Neanderthals had children together. Their original findings were wrong. As always, the Bible's history is right. We hope you'll visit our information-packed website at AnswersRadio.com to learn more. You'll find answers and encouragement to think biblically at AnswersRadio.com. 
Get Social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
next is from WWT Text uh, YouTube channel Romans one twenty four thirty two here on Triple Toll Radio. Amen. The goodness of our Lord Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be singing that Calvary song all week long. Almost became Pentecostal during that song. It's such a such a good lyric. But I want us to keep in mind this morning the words we have just sung in these songs of praises that we have lifted up. The gospel message, the word of Christ infused even within these lyrics. For we come to a very difficult passage today. And though we are going to go through a list of sins, even having described to us the depravity of man and a depravity that we see being displayed even within our own, uh, in our own culture, it is so very important for us to keep the gospel forefront, for it is the solution to all of man's ills. We are going through the book of Romans here in 2023 and even into next year. That's been our theme for this year as displayed on our banner up here to your left. Christ to the nations, with Romans 1.16, the reference that is there, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we keep these things in mind as we come to our passage today, still in Romans 1, we look at verses 24 to 32. In honor of the word of the king, would you please stand for the hearing of God's word. Romans 1 beginning in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over, to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. Having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider the things that we have just read, I pray that we read these things even in light of the gospel. For what we're reading about here are sins 
that men and women even can be rescued from only by the power of the gospel of Christ. No man wills himself out of his sins, but by the will of God we are saved from our sins. So let us consider these things, the reality of sin in the heart of sinful man and the reality of the gospel that saves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the days of King Ahaz, the Lord promised that judgment was going to come upon Judah at the hands of the Assyrian army. Judah had done wickedly before God. They had even committed the same abominations that Sodom had been guilty of. So God was going to turn them over to their enemies. But though Judah was told by the prophet Isaiah that God was going to do these things, their hearts were so hard that they could not hear the warning and so turn from sin and be saved. They were so without reason that they came to the prophet of God, and instead of saying to Isaiah, inquire of Yahweh for us, they said, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Isaiah 8, 19 to 20 says, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will clamor in the dark because they suppress the truth with unrighteousness, as we have heard from Romans 1.18. The world hates the idea that there is a God who has clearly spoken. They don't want a God who speaks clearly. They want a God like Ahaz and Judah wanted, one who whispers and mutters, and too many preachers are willing to appease them. Ask two Southern Baptist Convention presidents preaching on this very section of Romans said that God whispers about sexual sin. Of course, one president was plagiarizing the other, but I digress. Is that the impression that you got when we were reading here from Romans 1, that God whispers about sexual sin? God doesn't whisper about anything. He has spoken loud and clear about sin and the consequences of sin. When we read Romans 1, 24 to 32, we are reading about how a perversion of the truth leads to the perversion of life. We see the degradation even of an entire culture, and we must be clear about this so that we will clearly see the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, our theme for the book of Romans. As we have heard once again from Romans 1, 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. As we look at this next section, as I've been given the task of going through part two, of Romans 1, 18 to 32, I want to recall once again verses 24 to 25. Pastor Tom read them last week, but to keep these things in context, we'll start there, where God gives them over to impurity 
We'll move on from there to verses 26 to 27, where we read that God gave them over to dishonorable passions. And then verses 28 to 32, where God gave them over to an unfit mind. Look with me at verse 24, where we read, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Now, since the first word that we have here is therefore, that is a good place to do some recap. Remember the argument that Paul is making here. He has stated in Romans 1, 16 to 17, that the righteous live. The righteous are justified by faith, a point he is going to come back to in chapter 3. There is no way for us to obtain righteousness except by faith in Jesus Christ. By contrast, he's showing us how the unrighteous are condemned by their unbelief. What he is doing from here, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, he is showing how all people, women or men, Jew or Gentile, are under condemnation because they have violated the law. Whether that's the law of nature, as we read here in chapter 1, or the law of supernatural revelation, which we will get into when we get to chapter 2. Our purpose is to understand that all have sinned, even how all have sinned, so that we will recognize the only way to be rescued from that sin is in Christ alone. But people, by their sinful nature, do not desire God nor his truth. They suppress the truth with their desire for unrighteousness. They exchange the worship of the creator for the worship of the created. They exchange the truth about God for the lie. And as Pastor Tom pointed out last week, disordered worship leads to a disordered life. And so God, in his wrath, turns the unbeliever over to degrading passions. Therefore, we read again in verse 24, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. What we have in this verse is a general statement of God having given them over. Paul gets more specific as to their lust, their impurities, and the dishonoring of themselves in the verses that follow. Verse 25 calls back to what we heard last week in verses 18 to 23. Look at verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Pastor Tom pointed out there's a definite article there, so it's actually they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now look at me for a moment. We're about to get into a list of degrading passions. This is not exactly the kind of passage that you want to come to and do with the family at the family dinner table. We heard not long ago from Ephesians 5.12, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And so, to keep our minds fixed on the holiness of God rather than the unholiness of man, Paul offers this brief forward doxology. God is blessed forever and punctuates that by saying, amen. May it be so. 
May we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, even as we consider this list of sins today, so that we will not be overwhelmed, whether by felicity or by sorrow, regarding the list of passions that follows. So we go from this general statement about the lusts of their hearts to getting more specific about dishonorable passions. So look at verse 26. For this reason, again, what reason? Because they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. God gave them over. And remember again, this is God's wrath being manifested upon the unrighteous. God gave them over to dishonorable passions. What are dishonorable passions? Look at the rest of verse 26 going into verse 27. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committed indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, I want you to notice something about the language there. Most of you, are in, your, most of you in your translations, you have something like this. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. Now, that rendering is not necessarily wrong, but it's also not exact. What did I read to you? Rather than saying women and man, the words I read to you were female and male. Almost every single translation will read in these two verses, women and men, except two. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, before they made their revisions, and the Legacy Standard Bible, which I am reading to you now. Even the King James Version says women and men. So I checked with Tom and Mark to make sure that they were seeing the same thing that I was seeing, and they confirmed. The Greek words are not the words for woman and man. They're the Greek words for female and male, respectively. This should bring to our attention. Now remember, Pastor Tom last week said, when we're coming into Romans 1 like this, Paul is taking us right back to creation and the order of creation. So this should bring to our attention the natural order that God made in the beginning. Genesis 1:27, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Brothers and sisters, there are two sexes, male and female. Males will always be male, and females will always be female. Their genetic makeup is immutable by God's design. Now, although there are only two sexes, and we agree on that, right? There's only two sexes. How many genders are there? Four. Now, before you drag me out to the parking lot and stone me, hear me out. People do not have genders. People have sexes. Words have genders. In grammar, and all my English teachers in the house say amen. All right, in grammar, the four genders of a noun 
are masculine, feminine, common, and neuter. Where in the world did we get this concept that people can have any one of a multitude of genders and that gender is fluid? This idea originated with a sexologist, whatever that is, named John Money in the 1950s and 60s. He wrote over 500 papers and 40 books on the subject of sex and gender. Money did not consider the idea that there are only two sexes to be absolute. So he hijacked the word gender, which led to the idea that though there may only be two sexes, there may be any number of different genders. Terry Goldie, professor of English at York University in Toronto, wrote a biography on John Money, and he said, quote, Money believed that if you were a biological male and believed yourself to be a female, that was an e-day feast. It was so important to you as a person that it could not be contradicted, unquote. Goldie said that money did not search for biological evidence of transgender identity, but he accepted a patient's conviction as fact and, quote, that you should be given the right and the medical means to be what you want to be, unquote. Now, if we were to consider John Money to be the father of the transgender movement, even the father of this movement said from the beginning that there is no biological evidence for transgenderism, nor does there need to be. If a man believes he's a woman, then he's a woman. If he feels like he's neither and he wants to make up his own category, then he's that too. With an insatiable desire for sin, they have suppressed the truth and perverted that which God made from the beginning, male and female. Unless anyone wants to say that Jesus never addressed this. Oh, yes, he did. First of all, he's the creator who made them male and female. And secondly, he said in Matthew 19.4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? But being given over to dishonorable passions, back to Romans 1.26, their females exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And it's fascinating to me that Paul mentions females first before he mentions the males, it's really the only place in Scripture that lesbianism is mentioned. And by the way, this is the same order in which those deprived desires fall in the LGBTQ acrostic, isn't it? L comes before G. Did they even know that they were lining that up with what Paul put in Romans 1? Why does Paul mention lesbianism before sodomy as an exchange of natural function? Women, it seems, have an ingrained desire in themselves for motherhood, more so than men naturally desire fatherhood. It's why we'll use the expression, the clock is ticking for a woman, but we won't necessarily say that about a man. A woman has a limited window in her lifetime in which to bear children, whereas a man can become a father at almost any age. So in an unbelieving, godless culture, if the women have surrendered their natural function for that which is unnatural, that speaks to the totality of the corrupting influence of such a culture. The desire for motherhood isn't even there. 
Instead, they exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. John MacArthur says the following, quote, in our culture, the lesbian movement has been vocal and relentless and passionate and fierce and even violent. Proof that absolutely all virtue is gone when motherhood, the highest normal human virtuous relationship is abandoned and the people who do it are elevated as cultural icons. All virtue is gone when homosexuality invades the female sex, unquote. Verse 27 again. And in the same way, also the males abandon the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Now to word it in this way, for Paul to describe their lust as burning with desire, this is to say that the desires they have are part of God's wrath that they are under. The desire itself is disordered. It is unnatural. That desire did not exist in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the picture, but it does exist in the fall. So therefore, the desire, a man's desire for a man in this way, is a result of the fall. If a man lusts for another man, if he has a romantic desire for another man, or likewise women with women, that is unnatural desire. Do not be fooled by this culture or anyone else into thinking that desire is not something bad until you give in to it. Even the desire for sin is sin. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that if a man lusts for a woman, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Colossians 3, 5 to 6 says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Get that. The very desire for sexual sin, the wrath of God is coming against. And so, my brothers and sisters, mortify or put to death even the desire for sin from among yourselves. We read here of God giving men over to burn in their desire toward one another, males with males committing indecent acts. The wording here is like it appears in the law. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination, Leviticus 18.22. But here in Romans 1, this is being spoken about as contrary to nature. One does not need special revelation to know that men having sexual relations with men is wrong. My friends, listen to me. You inherently know that a male and a male are sexually incompatible. We know that. It is obvious. There is surely no farmer on the planet who is so ignorant that he could purchase two males of any animal expecting to get more offspring from that animal. 
If your kid goes to college and signs up for the ag program and he tries to mate a male sheep with another male sheep, that university will flunk him out of their ag program. No matter how progressive and bought in to the sexual revolution that university happens to be. We know, we know this so plainly that there's no reason for me to go on arguing the point. A man is an adult human male who will always be male. And contrary to what one of our Supreme Court justices doesn't know, a woman is an adult human female who will always be female. Sexual relations between man and woman are natural. And sexual relations between a man and a man or a woman and a woman are unnatural. And our unbelieving culture is so given over to a depraved mind that you might get fired from your job just for repeating the Captain Obvious statement that I just made. Just last month, a young police officer in Georgia was suspended from his job and then forced to resign after he posted on Facebook that God designed marriage and there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. Also last month, the state of Colorado ruled against Masterpiece Cake Shop baker Jack Phillips because he refused to bake a transitioning cake for a man who claimed to be a woman. In October, a teacher in California was fired because she refused to read books to her class that promoted same-sex marriage, same marriage to children. In July, a housing manager in London was fired from her job when she voiced her beliefs in the biblical definition of marriage while campaigning for mayor of her local community. In June, a jailer in Iowa was fired because it was discovered that he expressed his belief in the biblical definition of marriage on Facebook 10 years ago. In 1 Peter 4, 4-5, we read, In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't be intimidated by the angry wiles of this culture. Be submitted to Christ. And so as we read here in the rest of verse 27, they receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. They receive in their own persons. The due penalty is the fact that they have been given up to these unnatural excesses. There are very immediate consequences for those who indulge in such an unnatural lifestyle, including sexually transmitted diseases, deep depression, substance abuse, emotional and physical abuse, a shorter life expectancy for those who exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And I say these things not to boast in my righteousness over anybody else, but because I do not want anyone to fall into this sin, the consequences of their sin, and then come into judgment before God. There is, of course, the greater judgment in the life that is to come if they do not repent. So we have read that God gave them over in the lust of their hearts, verses 24 to 25. He gave them over to dishonorable passions, verses 26 to 27. And finally, he gave them over to an unfit mind, 
Look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, meaning that they did not approve of God as being worthy of their worship, so God gave them over to an unfit mind. They did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness. Remember that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. So we come back to that statement here in verses 28 to 29. They are filled with all unrighteousness. They are filled with these evil desires, and they continue to do them. And then Paul fills out what other manner of unrighteousness that they display. Now, some will say that because there's this whole other list of sins here at the conclusion of Romans 1 – then there's no real difference between these sins and the sin of homosexuality that he just described. But the scriptures are clear that there is a uniqueness to sexual sin that makes it unlike any other sin. As the Spirit says in 1 Corinthians 6:18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. And even worse than sexual sins like adultery and fornication are homosexual sins, for the Spirit describes them here in Romans 1 as unnatural desire. Jude 7 says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them having indulged in the same way as, those, as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Don't try to tell Sodom and Gomorrah that God whispers about sexual sin or even the sin of homosexuality. These are unnatural passions that God will but not everyone who has been turned over to an unfit mind will indulge in unnatural desire. They will, however, be unable to perceive what is good and so do the right thing. So they will be given over to doing that which is evil. And these are the things which are common among them. So often practiced that they are said to be full of these sins. Look at the next part of verse 29. Wickedness, greed, evil full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. They'll even come up with new ways to sin. Friends, we are not scraping the, bottle, uh, the bottom of the barrel here with this list of sins that we're considering. We've not touched on a whole other host of things that we see going on in our culture, like Drag Queen Story Hour at the public library, or the sex ed that is being put in front of some students at the public school, or pedophilia, or prostitution, or pornography. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list of the worst sins, but it's enough to show us what those under the wrath of God have been turned over to in a depraved culture. Consider the rest of verse 30. They are disobedient to parents. It is a thing most natural to recognize the authority of one's parents. But if they will not submit to their parents' authority, they will not submit to anyone's authority. 
as we see playing out even in our culture today. Verse 31, they are without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. As Proverbs 12:10 says, even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. And Proverbs 27, 6 says, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Verse 32 now. And although they know the righteous requirement of God, get that, they know the righteous requirement of God. In verse 18, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. In verse 20, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen, so they are without excuse. In verses 26 to 27, they do what they know is contrary to nature. In this passage, we're only talking about natural law. We haven't even gotten to supernatural revelation, which comes in the next chapter. So just by nature, just by general revelation, they know the righteous requirement of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. But although they know this, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So what's the downgrade of the culture that we see here in Romans 1, 18 to 32? There are certain unnatural passions that for a time the culture may go, oh, well, that's gross and disgusting. Why are those people doing that? But over time you see the culture becomes accepting of it. And though they know the righteous requirement of God that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they approve of it. Those who do such things and those who approve of such things will receive the same punishment, the wrath of God, eternity in hell. And my friends, as I said to you in the beginning, it is important for us to recognize this. Speak clearly about these things. So that we will recognize the need for the gospel. We understand the need for the gospel in ourselves, in our church, in our community, in our culture, to the nations. Only one message has the power to free a person from the sins that we have read about here. And that message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? If we don't understand the seriousness of these sins and the consequences they bring, or if we don't understand the power of the gospel to set men and women, boys and girls, free from sins such as these, then we won't be serious about the gospel when it comes time to share it. Where I lived in Kansas, I was just an hour away from Westboro Baptist Church. And some of you are probably familiar with Westboro and the media attention that they've gained worldwide for the protests that they would do at military funerals, but at other things as well. We had, a pro we had them come and protest in our community in Junction City several times. Once it was at one of our high school graduations. And you see them out there with their signs. Their signs, of course, contain very hateful messaging, but they're also messages that contradict themselves. A person will stand there with one sign that will say, repent or perish. Okay? I can agree with that one. Right next to him, 
is another person holding a sign that says, it's too late to repent. So if it's too late to repent, what's the point of the other sign saying repent or perish? My friends, I tell you, it is not too late to repent. As long as there is breath in your lungs, you are hearing now that today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin to Christ and be saved. And we need to know that for those in our lives who need to hear this message, to turn from sin to Christ. Repent was the very first word that Jesus proclaimed at the beginning of his gospel ministry in Matthew 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and we need to stand in the way of this degraded culture headed to hell and call out to our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, our loved ones, strangers alike. Repent and turn to Jesus. A friend of mine shared this testimony on social media this past week. I had sex with so many men and women, I lost count. I took my clothes off, did heroin, I stole, I lied, I cheated. I was an adulterer, an alcoholic, and an addict. And Jesus Christ delivered me from that and dressed me in white. You can throw all the pain at me you want. No one can stain my gown. I am new. You might consider the sins that we've read about today to be absurd. And you're right. It's true. They are absurd. The more you sin, the more foolish you become. I've seen people throw their lives away for foolish passions, and you probably have had people in your life that have done the same. Once upon a time in my life, I almost did this very thing. It's only by the grace of God that I was not given over to my debased mind to do worse than what I was doing. I praise God that I came to my senses and I repented of my sins. And my life returned from being fixated on my flesh to instead being fixated on Christ, all by the power of the gospel. As it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And brothers and sisters, I stand before you as a living example. God will cleanse you of your sins. There is no desire so depraved that God will not restore you from it. It is the power of the gospel of Christ. The gospel has more power than even your sins have over your flesh. Turn to Christ. Continue to mortify the desire. Be clothed in his righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, we read, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, 
but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. My brothers and sisters, may there be sitting in our midst those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who can say, I once was that, but I've been washed at Calvary. Mercy and grace found in Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you are convicted by these things that we have read and considered out of Romans 1, maybe it wasn't one of these sins, but you just know I am in sin that I need to be cleansed of. And I pray you will remain and talk to one of these pastors, and we would love to walk you through the scriptures and help you to understand what it means to know the gospel of Christ. If you go out this door over here to your left, around back is the choir room. We make that a prayer room after the service, and somebody will be there to want to pray with you and share the gospel with you. For the rest of us, my friends, we cannot be glib about these things that the Bible says, whether we're talking about sin or we're talking about the gospel. We need to speak boldly in the midst of this twisted generation in which, as it says in Philippians 2, we are to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And may it be said of us that we are washed and made new in Christ. In Christ, the testimony of believers might sound like this. I'm taking some liberties with Romans 1, 24, and 25. But in Christ, we might hear something like this. Therefore, God gave them up in their hearts to self-control and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is our spiritual act of worship. For they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped and served not the creature, but the creator, blessed forever, and all God's people said, amen. Please pray with me. Once again, that was from WWUT text. That's WWUTEXT, like T-E-X-T. And that was called God Gave Them Over. You can find that. YouTube on that channel, I mean, uh, the, the lesson on that channel. And thank you for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. I am your host, Melissa Cantola. Uh, once again, remember you can find us at truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com, and then our email is truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Truth be told radio show at gmail.com and that's all i got today for truth be told radio gonna go in um go out as we came in uh with but this time with the via billy but nancy and friends who sings it and until next time bye for now